Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It is brought to you this week by Bombfell and Squarespace. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Jason. It's good to be back in space. Back in space. We were in uh, we were in Chicago together last week. That's going to come up. Actually, one of these one of these news stories was breaking as we were together, which is exciting to talk about and <laughs> trying to explain things to people who had just. I think they yeah. were listening because they were stuck at the table with us. Like <laughs> we did a little liftoff podcast for an mm-hmm. audience of two at Umami Burger in Chicago, where we were explaining to Mike Hurley and Federico Vatici, your co-hosts on Connected, um, about gravitational waves, and f- which ended up being a conversation about like trying to explain relativity. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. that was it was really interesting to try and to, to do that and try to remember myself like okay how do I explain this and how does this work and we ended up having a whole relativistic spaceship conversation that mm-hmm. didn't no, I'm not sure that went well although it, it was mind blowing I did I, I did get to do that moment where I was like you have identical twins and one of them travels far away at the speed of light or near the speed of light and then comes back and they're old one they're younger than their twin oh and they're like that seems like that wouldn't be true it's like I know right. <laughs> Yeah. Like, uh, check, please. <laughs> Ready to go. <laughs> yeah. Enjoy your burger. So, yeah. uh, yes. And we, we got to spend some time together and do that like a uh, little mini lift up. But we will revisit that subject now that we practiced it in front of Mike and, and Federico. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but first, we've got some things in the pre-flight checklist, as always. We do. And we're going to start with Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos' rocket company. Remember, they have been doing these suborbital flights. They landed their first stage booster. They separated their capsule, landed it. They've been doing a bunch of tests, but it's all suborbital at this point. Uh, but there are signs that they are moving rather rapidly into a an orbital vehicle. So they are building an engine called the BE4. Uh, I assume <laughs> BE is Big a blue engine. origin engine. Like, <laughs> okay, that could be. Yeah. It's probably not a bad word like uh, Elon Musk does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the, the bleeping engine. Bleeping engine four. It yep. will be... Uh, powering the New Glenn orbital rocket. There's actually going to be seven of them. Uh, the New Glenn is like 82 meters tall, capacity to lift 45 tons to low Earth orbit, uh, and even more to geostationary transfer orbit. It's going to be a, a full-sized orbital rocket. But this engine is super interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, it's built to be completely reusable, as we would expect any new development in this day and age, right? I think Anyone building a rocket motor now that's not meant to be reusable, uh, I, I, I got questions. Uh, they're going to use liquid natural gas to fire it. So different from the uh, the kerosene uh, mixture that SpaceX uses. And it's funded entirely with private money. Most of the time, these big, super expensive projects are subsidized by you know the government or the Air Force or you know uh, some public entity, but because Blue Origin is a completely private company, uh, that is just being done uh, in-house. The BE-4 will provide 550,000 pounds of thrust, which is more than SpaceX's upcoming Raptor motor, which uh, SpaceX has been firing a Raptor motor at their at their facility like once every three or four weeks now for several months. They are um, rapidly evolving and developing that, that engine. Uh, but the BE-4 is actually going to be the most powerful U.S. rocket engine developed since 
uh, Rocketdyne built the RS-68, which is what uh, powers the Delta IV rocket. That thing is like 660,000 pounds of thrust or so. So it's a serious, serious engine to do serious work. And I think we're going to be moving into this time frame over the next year or so where we see Blue Origin uh, getting close to orbital flight, which which is it's going to be exciting. Uh, it's they're getting serious, and their path has been very different than SpaceX. But they're going to yeah. end up, I think, at the end of the day, with with facilities and with uh, capabilities that that are very much alike. Yeah, it's really interesting to see this. Uh, how this is, they're approaching it from different angles, and yet may end up being. Uh... Uh, who knows, like direct competitors, uh, uh, sort of even, or, you know, I wonder if what, what would happen to Blue Origin kind of like bobbed ahead, and then what would that mean for SpaceX and what would they do? Um, the We don't talk a lot about like making rocket motors and stuff, but like <laughs> that's a huge part of this is SpaceX is building their Raptor motor, and then we've got the BE-4, and this is these are the things they stick on the bottom of the rockets that the stuff comes out of that allows the rockets to go. <laughs> They're kind of important. <laughs> I like that. I like that explanation. I think that sums yeah. it up. That's we could Mike would understand that. We Mike, Mike and Federico, they would be like, oh yeah, yeah okay, and then take the, another bite of their burger. Where the fire um, comes out. I have some pre-flight checklist item that wasn't in our show notes, but we did talk about it, and I realized we should probably talk about it here, too, which is our friends at Bigelow Aerospace, the people who like to put inflatable things in space. Mm-hmm. It's fun, right? Just like a, like pool toys in space. <laughs> Bouncy castle. Um, yeah, exactly. They made an announcement that they're going to... So they, they had the beam, which we've talked about, which is a module at the International Space Station. You shoot it up there, and then when it when it's attached and all that, then you inflate it, and it ends up inflatable. The idea is inflatables are much easier to take to space because they're light and small, and then they can inflate to be a large size in space, and, and therefore it's more economical. And Bigelow Aerospace is this company that is all about inflatable space habitats. So they made an announcement that they're going to do, and, and they, they've suggested they were on this path for a while. The beam, which is, uh, I think, had its life extended at the International Space Station, they're, they're going to keep it there longer because it seems to be going really well, um, that they want to move to the next path, which is to create a big module and show that they can basically make an inflatable space station. So they've got a plan to do that. They've got a thing called the B-330, which is uh, which is meant to be its own space station. And what they're going to do is they're, they're apparently partnering with United Launch Alliance, and they're going to... Uh, they're going to launch. So they've got a rocket. Talk about commercial space stuff. The Vulcan, uh, which is supposed to be ready to go in 2019, and Bigelow says that they're going to put. They're going to use the Vulcan to put the B330 into low Earth orbit for a year. And the idea there is like with Beam to show, hey, inflatable inflatable space habitats totally work. So they're going to they're going to launch this thing in 2019. They say inflated up in space and then they're going to they, they, what they want to do is send supplies and crew to live in that space station and rotate them through and basically create a little mini space station as a proof of concept of the fact that their inflatable modules can be used to space stations because what they want to do and this is what we talk about about like getting in on the uh <laughs> getting in on the moon money mm-hmm. it's a thing i just made up but hey, the moon money um where you have uh the government in the u.s being like well we want to go back to the moon and basically bigelow is waving their hand and saying you don't need to create a like an, a super expensive 
massive space station in in uh, lunar orbit, you can send one of our inflatable habitats there and use that as your lunar way station. Mm-hmm. So they, they've got a story that they're telling about once they've got this thing, what could it be used for? And the answer is, you know, what couldn't be used for? It could be around the moon, it could be around Mars, whatever. And so they they are making these announcements and trying to trying to get there's a great story at the Verge by Lauren Grush as always we say that every week when we talk about this about exactly what Bigelow's doing but they're definitely you know using their inflatable technology that they've been working on to also kind of like uh, get them in line for being part of any funding for like moon missions especially and I think this is great I, I think if they can prove that this technology works it has the ability to create these space habitats with lots of space way cheaper because instead of the rigid metal it's this inflatable thing as long as they can show that 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 it works so that they're they're kind of putting they and ULA are kind of putting some money down here saying we're going to do this as a proof of concept in 2019 and and you know you'll see you'll all see that uh, that uh, in the bouncy house is the place to be in space yeah i think we're i think we're entering this time we're going to see a lot of companies making pitches for lunar stuff right i Mm -hmm. mean even that that blue origin story the undertone there is is this thing going to be ready in time to you know to go to the moon so i think this is chapter one in what will be a a long series of these stories uh because you're right there's going to be funding and with SpaceX sort of opening the door to private companies working alongside NASA and and all these other agencies, it's going to be really different than it was. You know, we've been talking about the early crewed missions in NASA's history, which we're going to get back to this week. It's very different from that. And we're going to see all these companies working together and we're going to see competition. And it's going to be a very different type of type of space race than than what we saw 60 years ago. Yeah, and the um, there's a real question of how well in the in the long run the um, old model, which is NASA chooses a contractor and has the contractor build things for them, how much of that is going to survive? Because these commer- commercial companies, I mean, they are making the case; they are trying very hard to make the case that they can do what NASA needs. Now, the model has been all along, like, you guys do the routine stuff, and NASA will do the trailblazing. But when I look at Bigelow, and I look at Blue Origin and SpaceX, like, they're all sort of saying, look, we can do more. We want to do more. We And, and so what it seems like they're saying is, instead of choosing a big government sort of like contractor to build NASA's rocket, why don't you give us money to use the rockets that we're using, you know, that we're building ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's it's it's not that different in some ways and it's very different in other ways. And so that's that's a uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes, but cuz in the past what would have happened is behind the scenes all these different companies would just be fighting for the NASA contract. Right. And then NASA would give money to the different parties. And now it's sort of like in out here in public it's happening because these country these companies are just saying like bigelow is not saying we're going to make an inflatable space habitat um or we've got an idea for it and you should use us uh for your space habitat they're saying we're building one and launching it and then you can buy one from us that's a little bit different and Mm -hmm. uh, i think it's i think it's pretty cool because the whole idea is you have these companies that are trying to innovate in order to make money and that it may be uh, it may or may not prove whether, it, you know, a big government bureaucracy is a better way forward than these scrappy 
uh, companies because my my guess is there are pros and cons to both approaches. Totally. But uh, we previously didn't have both. We only had the one. So right. it's a little bit different now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I'm with you. I'm excited to see see where that goes. Planet Nine is, is back in the news. It has not been yeah. found. That would be <laughs> a uh, we're doing an emergency recording, I think. <laughs> they found right, Planet could, Nine. Yeah. We're going to be recording as soon as possible. Yeah. Uh, but Hasn't it been is, found. Yeah, not, not not found. It is back in the news a little bit. Um, there was an initial white paper uh, published about this, and it seems like they're amending that, or there's an addition. What what's going on here? Yeah, so Planet Nine, um, they uh, some things going on like the um, the findplanetnine.com website, which is very nice. Um, that's put together by Mike Brown and Constantine Batygin, who are the two Caltech astronomers who have said. Uh, they think there's a ninth planet at way beyond Neptune that is that is uh, sort of a, a super Neptune is 10 times the mass of the Earth, 20 times further away from the sun than Neptune, and that the there are small icy bodies in the outer solar system that are influenced by its gravity, and that's how they think that it, it exists. So that's been out there a while. We've talked about it some. They posted a couple new posts on Flying Pine Planet 9. They are attempts by astronomers to explain complicated papers a little bit less in a less complicated fashion. It's still pretty complicated, but if you would like nerdy astronomy stuff about Planet 9, go to findplanet9.com. It's pretty cool that the, these guys are blogging about that stuff in public. They were recently in Hawaii. They did a week of observations in Hawaii trying to find Planet 9. Maybe they found it or not. I'm sure they're looking at the data and trying to figure that out. Um, JPL uh, in Pasadena, Jet Propulsion Lab, did a story about Planet 9 that's a really nice overview that, that uh, you found, Stephen. It's a really nice overview of sort of like, why do they think it exists? What are the clues? What clues have they come up with lately? There have been more observations of icy solar system bodies in certain orbits that suggest that, um, that they, they go along with the predicted location of those objects based on this theory of Planet Nine. And a lot of the Planet Nine skeptics while trying to come up with reasons why Planet Nine might not exist, have not been able to uh, show that it doesn't exist, right? They, they, uh, which is interesting, right? Because that suggests that while people are kind of struggling to come up with some possible other answers, like, no, it's actually just random, and we're only seeing these certain objects because of the what we're looking for, and then it's not actually they're, they're everywhere, but you're only seeing the ones you're looking for, and that's why sort of the argument there. Um, but uh, Mike Brown and Constantine Batygin say that um, they feel like they've narrowed it down enough in terms of their computer models to narrow their search. Which makes them think that uh, within, I think they said within the decade, um, they think somebody will find it if it is in where they think it is. And it could be as early as this year, but they would have, people would have to get lucky. So, um, you know, they're looking, other people are looking, they're definitely doing these surveys. These guys who theorized this, they really want to get the whole, the whole picture here and uh, get the credit for discovering it because the theory is great. And if somebody else finds Planet Nine, Brown and Batygin will definitely get uh, some some credit for telling them where to look. But they won't be the discoverers of Planet Nine, right? It'll be whoever like spots it and says, right. "There it is, I got it." So they're looking, um, and uh, it sounds like they're they are the JPL story basically says it right, which is they are increasingly uh, convinced that it exists and are having a hard time um, imagining 
that it doesn't. <laughs> like, right. like they, they, what else could build all this evidence? Yeah. Like the more the more they get, and it could be that they're they're just so far down that they can't see the forest for the trees. But it sounds like you know they they're still investigating the mystery. But it sounds like they have gotten far enough down that they really think that they're onto onto something, and they just have to get that last clincher, that last piece of evidence, in order to make it uh, a done deal. And that has to be like optically sighting, you know, in a right. telescope. You've got to you've got to say there it is, and uh, and they haven't been able to do that yet. Yeah, one thing that jumped out at me in that article uh, was about Planet Nine's origin. You know, is it a planet that was initially closer to our sun and they got flung out, or maybe it sort of wandered over? And and basically, what they say is that the detection should tell us something about its origin. That they're right. not really caught up in where did this planet come from, how did it end up where it is, but looking at the effects it has had on the solar system and proving that it's there is sort of the first order of business and that once we see it or detect it, maybe that will tell us more about where it, where it came from, but that doesn't seem to be their primary focus at this point. Yeah. And they're, they're also start, starting to talk about like what happens if we see it, like, what do we do? And so some of it is like, we may get a much better idea of like exactly what it is and where it came from and all of that, because then they'll be able to lock it down. Cause there are a lot of different things, but once they get that, like, Oh, this is where it is. Instead of searching, you know, you know, a, a huge number of possible paths, they'll have a a single answer, and then th- they can start to work back from there and figure out, okay, what does that say that it's it's where this is? And I think it's interesting that they're starting to think like, how does this work when we find it? Like when we find it, who, you know, what do we say? What do we? What does that learn? What does it mean? Um, I have to say, I I don't know if you do this now, but. You know, I have started to read between the lines of astronomers because very often, as with uh, gravitational waves, which we're going to talk about in a minute, um, there are those moments where you're like, you can tell that they've actually got something mm-hmm. and they just can't say yet because they haven't had the, the paper isn't written and published. And so, you know, everybody's kind of under embargo, so they're not saying, but you can tell they're excited about it. I don't feel like that's the case with Brown and Batigan yet. But I find myself, every time they write about this, I find myself asking, like, are they prepping us for what they think they've already found or not? Mm. I don't think we're there with Planet Nine. I don't think they've found it. Because I think that they would probably very quickly do a an initial announcement because they've been promoting this so much in the meantime. But I am kind of keeping my eye on those guys because i do wonder sometimes if uh if they did find something but they need to check it out if they how would they act like would they would they tell jpl to write a big blog post that's an explainer about planet nine so that they can point everybody to it when they find it um uh, i don't think they found it yet but uh let's keep an eye on them because if they get if suddenly there's like a picture of them and they're smiling and they've got champagne splashed all over them that's a (laughs) that's a tip-off that there might be something going on yeah, I, I agree. I think I think it's in the news for a reason, but I don't think that's the reason quite yet. But it is interesting. And it does feel like some point sooner or later we're going to be covering that. That it's just a matter of seeing seeing the thing. I hope so. I mean, because it would be it would be a huge discovery, right? Oh yeah. We haven't a new planet has not been discovered in a very long time, and it would be the first instance of this. I mean, it's a very distant object, which would be weird and totally make us rethink the the uh, the construction of the solar system. And uh, also, what we said on previous shows, you know, one of the most common planet types found in our exoplanet surveys is this 
planet that's that's sort of between uh between earth and neptune like it's a 10 it's a super earth or a a mini neptune it's like 10 times the mass of the earth is what planet nine is supposed to be like that's actually a very common planet and we have none of them in our solar system which is sort of strange like that was an interesting discovery of learning about exoplanets so if planet nine gets found that's another fascinating little bit it's like oh we do have one of those guys he's just in a weird place and why and then we have to you know, that's a great thing about science. Like every answer creates more questions, which is part of the fun of it. So I mm-hmm. hope, I hope so. And if they don't find it, that'll be interesting too, because, um, there may, we, we may learn something other, other worldly uh, in a way about how our outer solar system is constructed, right? There's gotta be something causing what we're seeing. Um, and if it's not a big planet, then, you know, what else is it? And what does that teach us about the outer solar system? So Either way, I think it'll be good, but wouldn't it be great if there is a Planet Nine? Uh, So we're going to talk about gravitational waves, but first I want to take a break and tell you about our first sponsor. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Bombfell, the online personal styling service dedicated to finding the right clothes for you. If you're a modern man, you may like to streamline the more stressful parts of your life. And if you're like me, one of the stressful parts is uh, clothes shopping. With Bombfell, you can update your look with brand new items to refresh your wardrobe. When you sign up, you'll be paired with your own stylist. They work uh, hard to hand-select items they think will work for you. They look through the menswear collections around the world to find clothes you'll look great in. You only pay for what you keep, and returns are free. It's the smart way to shop, and it's completely flexible. You can push up or delay or skip shipments at any time. So I went through the sign-up process. There's a style quiz. It's super easy to do. Uh, there's no stress. There's no like, I'm not sure what this word means or what this means. It's it's very straightforward. And the items I got out of it, uh, I really do do like and enjoy. It's well made. Uh, I've been really happy with it. We have an exclusive deal just for Liftoff listeners. You get $25 off your first purchase by visiting bombfell.com slash liftoff. Signing up is easy. Just tell them your measurements and the kind of clothes you like in a simple questionnaire. You'll get an email from your stylist with your handpicked selections, and you have 48 hours to make any changes or even cancel altogether. Your clothes will arrive, and you'll have seven days to try them on and check them out before any payment is made, so you can send back anything you don't like. You're in total control of this. Bombfell also has the option to sign up on behalf of your partner and makes a great gift. It's time to upgrade your wardrobe and feel great in the clothes you wear. Go to bombfell.com slash liftoff, that's B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L, for $25 off your first purchase. Bombfell, open and close. We thank Bombfell for their support of this show and Relay FM. Gravitational waves, back in the news, two, two episodes in a row, Jason. I know, right? It's very exciting. So last time, in fact, we they, they this is that, that hint thing. They're like, maybe we will find things that are not black hole collisions. Hmm. And the answer was, of course, they, they had. And they were working on the paper because this happened a while ago. August 17th, there was a gravitational wave detection at the LIGO Observatory in Washington State. 
And uh, it's come out since then that that what happened was there was a uh, there were a bunch of text messages and Slack conversations, and some of those <laughs> have been released. Uh, they actually put their Slack chat transcript in the appendix to one of the articles, which is pretty funny. Where this is the collaboration thing, which is they felt like this was something that could be seen that this was not a black hole collision; it's a neutron star collision, and so they basically. Uh, and, and they went to the, the observatory in Italy and they said that they had gotten a signal, but it was it was very light, which suggested that it was on the other side of the planet from them. And uh, it was confirmed. So they um, they got everybody with a telescope and basically said, look at this part of the sky and see if you can find something that's different. And they, they looked and there's in one of those chat transcripts, it's like, yeah, and one, one through four, there's nothing. And then like an hour passes and it's like five and six, there's nothing. And then 45 minutes passes and it's like, Oh, there's something in seven, <laughs> and and they uh, and they spot it, and everybody observes it, and as a result, uh, what the LIGO uh, spokesman David Shoemaker said is, uh, it's not out of the question. This is the most observed astronomical event ever. Uh, we've got somewhere between a quarter and a third of all the world's astronomers working with us. So this wow. is a great example where they got the general part of the sky where it was, and very quickly could figure out where it was, and everybody's. Uh, everybody's telescopes turned to it and so they were able to spot it and get visual confirmation of what LIGO had detected with gravity which is also a, a first right that the gravity telescope has had a visible or a you know electromagnetic it's not just all visible light it's infrared and and uh, gamma rays and all sorts of other things too but um, the the electromagnetically visible universe has confirmed the gravitational mm-hmm. universe observation for the first time it's it's really cool, and it's the first gravitational wave detected from something, like you said, other than black holes. So this was a pair of neutron stars about 130 million light years away, uh, which is 10 times closer than the next nearest gravitational wave source. The, the gravitational waves caused by black holes colliding are far stronger than this event. So this one... Uh, these could be occurring further out, but we can't detect those. At some point, right. LIGO is going to become more sensitive to these things so we may see these things further out into the universe but right now they've got to be pretty close and what's what's interesting about this and this was a word i think you and i both learned we were reading about this uh is kilonova so this is a uh an event that takes place two neutron stars collide and it is the the birthplace of a lot of heavy elements something that we we had not seen before in the universe this is this is really remarkable stuff. So the Kilanova, you know, they try, try to come up with a name for this thing. Um, two neutron stars, by the way, they are like the mass of the sun, but the size of the island of Manhattan. So these are incredibly, this is the densest matter that it can exist is a, a, a neutron star. It's basically everything is crushed into neutrons and they're densely packed neutrons. And... Uh, so these these things have been circling each other for a very long time. They were probably part of a binary before for them to be close enough. And obviously, space is so big, and these things are so small that it obviously took a very long time for them to sort of spiral in mm-hmm. to finally hit each other because they're not that big, and they finally did hit each other. And and the idea that these two incredibly densely packed uh, uh, 
objects smashed into each other. It's like, well, what what results? And then the answer is, it's a burst of energy that is not like a supernova, and it's not like a nova, which is why they gave it a different name. They called it a kilonova, but it is sort of a stellar explosion. It has a certain signature. Um, and theory has said that... Um, all of our models of supernovas can't really explain the existence of uh, elements heavier than iron. And, and if you remember our, our uh, supernova episode, the idea there is that you have elements up to iron that are fused in very large stars before they explode. All the way, they, they fusion keeps going up the periodic table all the way up to iron. And, okay, but what happens above that? And the kilonova was always one of the theories of like, well, what if you had something like two neutron stars that smashed into each other and they were throwing off those high energy neutrons and they were all banging around together? Would that cause um, fused elements at, that are even heavier? And there was thought that that was like the best theory for this. But now we've seen one which actually helps give us confirmation of those theories that that in in theory now and maybe in actuality, the gold in our 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 wedding rings is not from a, a supernova through a process we don't understand, but actually from neutron stars smashing into each other and littering. And they said that in. Let me see if I can get this right. They said that the Kilonova uh, event seen by LIGO generated um, gold of the mass of the Earth. Like, there's a lot of gold and a lot of other heavy elements that get made by this. If you can imagine a gold ball, the, the mass of the Earth, that is what was generated. Not as a ball, but as a spray. And then, you know, over the course of billions of years those heavy elements will just sort of like seed out and then eventually be condensed into uh you know solar systems like ours and that's where uh that's where the heavy elements come from but that's pretty pretty wild and not something i had had, had really thought about before they discovered it here yeah the same it it's something that's sort of hard to uh hard to grasp and and this is not a i think what's interesting too this is not a like a one time like they saw it but it, it is a like days or weeks or months long event. So they can map in extreme detail, like over the course of that time, what is going on in this kilonova. Right. Cause and, it, fa- it, it has that initial burst and then it fades and it, right. and it fades over time, but they get to observe the whole thing because they knew to look for it because of the gravitational signal. Yeah. It, it's really, it's really cool. And it's something that, you know, uh, when they had their announcement a couple of weeks ago, they sort of teased, you know, maybe one day we'll see, we'll see neutron stars colliding. And, and here we are. And <laughs> yeah, that uh, was some, some foreshadowing. We don't know what, yeah. what they turned into, by the way. That's another thing that's kind of a mystery is did they, mm-hmm. did they become a big neutron star? Did they lose enough mass in the collision? Did they, are they still sort of like two neutron star blobs that have kind of like gone off on their own paths? Did they collapse into a black hole? It's uh, that, that is unknown. Yeah, it's a, a lot of a lot of mystery, like you said, just like you said just a couple months ago. Something new comes along, and, and it leads to to answers, but it also leads to 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 more questions. Mm-hmm. And I think as as LIGO and as these observatories become more sensitive, I think they're they're planning some upgrades to the hardware, and, and they're getting better at reading the data. That we're going to see more of, of this type of event in the future as they can mm-hmm. as they can see and detect further and further back 
I don't I don't think this will be uh, be the only one, but it is. There's something really really exciting about this in a in a way that I didn't anticipate um, when the story broke. Like it was you know it was last week, and we're still talking about it now. Like there's something that's really exciting that this was detected, and so many people were on board, and that basically it was it was seen in wavelengths across the spectrum, like mm-hmm. from radio to gamma rays. They have the gravitational wave. Like there is no question about what this is and where it is in the sky. So now we have an idea where gold and uh, you know lead, uranium, uranium, <laughs> uh, all that fun stuff uh, comes from. So blame it on the neutron stars. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks, neutron stars. Mm. Uh, so we're going to get into uh, Project Gemini today. But do you want to tell us about Squarespace? Sure. Uh, this episode of Liftoff also brought to you by Squarespace. Enter offer code Liftoff at checkout and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. Make your next move with Squarespace. Space. It's got space in the name. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain, award-winning templates, and more. You want to create an online store for your business, a portfolio, a blog, whatever it is, Squarespace can make it. It's an all-in-one platform. It lets you do just that nothing to install no patches to worry about no upgrades needed you don't have a server to maintain or anything like that no command line you know where you've got to reset the patchy box or whatever no forget it squarespace has got it all covered and if you do have trouble they've got award-winning 24 7 customer support if you need any help they let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name they've got award-winning templates that are beautifully designed for you to show off all of your great ideas and plans here's the thing Start at just $12 a month for Squarespace. So don't you don't have to sign up for a server. You don't have to do your own design. You don't have to build your own card checkout flow system. None of that. And you can also try it without any risk. You don't even have to give them your credit card. That happens sometimes where you give them the credit card and then you have to cancel before they charge you. No, no credit card required. You can just start a trial by going to squarespace.com and signing up. And when you decide that it's great, and you want to use it and build your business on it, use offer code LIFTOFF to get 10% off your first purchase and support LIFTOFF. Thank you, Squarespace. Space, for your support of LIFTOFF. Squarespace, make your next move. Make your next website. All right. So we we finished Apollo after, not Apollo, we finished Mercury after many, yes. many weeks, many more weeks than I anticipated, to be mm. honest with you. Uh and and now we're on to uh, Project Gemini, which is the the second crew space program uh, under uh, under NASA. Hooray! Yeah. These are not all numbered seven, are they? No, 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 no more sevens. Uh, Thank goodness. No, I'm tired of sevens. I'm sorry. That's it's no good. Uh, so we're going to start with some background, as we do. Gemini started in 1961, as you may imagine that that. A lot of overlap here with with Mercury. It revolved around a uh, two astronaut uh, crew in a spacecraft, a spacecraft with two people in it, not just one. Gemini, the twins. That's right. Uh, all ten crews flew in 1965 and 1966. This was a, a very uh, very short program as far as actual flights. And its goal was to prepare NASA and its astronauts for complicated Apollo missions. So there's a big jump from you're in a little tuna can and you you do orbits 
in Mercury and in Apollo, you have to rendezvous with a spacecraft. You have to land a spacecraft on the moon. You've got to relaunch from the moon, re-rendezvous in lunar orbit, and then come back. Gemini was about bridging, basically about bridging that gap. So increasing mission duration, uh, working outside the spacecraft. So we have the first EVA here in Gemini, which is uh, actually uh, uh, some of those stories are actually pretty terrifying we're going to get to over the next couple weeks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> those early ones are a little rough. Um, and then achieving space rendezvous and docking. So, hey, can we, in Mercury, they stuck a balloon out the window and see if they could see it. And then Gemini, hey, we're going to have two launches and we're going to see if we can uh, chase down a, a service module because Apollo, of course, they had to basically spin around and then connect with their service module. Right. Each of these goals had to be met for Apollo to, to be successful. And they were all proven to be possible in Gemini. I think, I think the big picture is Gemini was an extremely successful program. Yeah, it's funny. As a kid, I learned about all the space programs. And what I did not understand about these missions was that they were all in service of the goal of Apollo, essentially, of getting somebody to the moon. Now, as an adult, I see that. But as a kid, I was like, oh, well, they, you know, they did a bunch of Mercuries, and then they did a bunch of Geminis, and then they did Apollo and went to the moon. But Gemini is, or as some astronauts call it, Gemini, which makes me laugh. Mm -hmm. Gemini Cricket. (laughs) Um... (laughs) It is, it's all about practice for for Apollo. It is, let's build a platform that lets us figure out how to do all this stuff for Apollo while they're also working on Apollo. Like, it is, it, that is what it's for. So it is, can we do an EVA, get, do a spacewalk? Can we do a space rendezvous and docking? Because we're going to need to do that. So, there, it, like, what's it like with multiple people in a capsule? How do we deal with that? Like, all of these things are checking off questions that nobody's done it before, but we're going to need to know all of these things before we get to Apollo. Yeah. And and I think it's overshadowed by all the groundbreaking stuff in Mercury and then obviously all the, uh, the craziness of Apollo of, of putting, putting yeah. men on the moon. It, but, it does get wedged in there where it seems yeah. less exciting, but it's actually got a lot of firsts and a huge amount of, uh, of learning that happened in the, in the Gemini era, mm-hmm. but it was wedged between the, fir- the, the real, you know, the big exciting firsts and then the big exciting moon stuff. And yeah. this was, this was the hard work, uh, of of uh making sure we could do all this stuff before we went to the moon so it's a little a little less um uh adulation than maybe it should have gotten yeah i think so um you would tell us about the launch vehicle yeah so um well all the flights were launched from launch complex 19 at cape kennedy in florida um at the air force station that we think of now as Kennedy Space Center. And uh, Gemini would be the last flights from yeah. this launch pad. This yeah, was this LC-19 is gone. It's not there. Don't look for it. It's not there. Uh, but the vehicle itself is the Gemini Titan II, a modified ICBM, so pretty much like what we expect from Mercury, which <laughs> yeah. is like, yeah, nuclear missiles or people going to space, whatever. We can do that. We could do both. Totally fine. Yeah. Why not? What What could go wrong? I mean, we've got these ICBMs laying around. We might as well use them. They're ro- big rockets. We're mm-hmm. going to use them to destroy the world or... Put people know, in space. Send, send a guy into space. Sure. Two. Two guys. So uh, the Titan II launched 12 times as a part of Gemini. Uh, the first two, which I'll mention in a second, were test flights. And then the other 10 were with uh, with people. It's a two-stage 
liquid fuel rocket that was modified, again, from its ICBM beginnings to use uh, with people. They created a bunch of uh, redundant systems, including secondary guidance systems, because, again, it's although it's still kind of a big deal when an ICBM that's launching a nuclear strike would fail, uh, it is worse when there's human beings riding mm-hmm. on it and you want some extra redundancy. That's the getting it rated. What we say now about commercial crew stuff uh, today is you got to get it rated for people. Yeah. And that's a lot harder, which is why SpaceX has launched a whole bunch of missions with cargo to the International Space Station, but hasn't launched any people yet because rating for, for crew is harder than cargo. Um, they added more fuel capacity. They chilled the fuel, which is, a, a, again, learning experience that uh, that was taken in future missions uh, to improve the performance. And um, the first stage would actually fire until it was dry in order to maximize the amount of time of lift. They would fire it until it literally had run entirely out. Instead of doing a kind of like shut down, kick it out, do the next thing, it would be like, just fire it until it's, is it done? Is it's out now? Okay, now pop it off and we'll go to the second stage. Uh, so a little bit about the, the astronauts. You had the, the Mercury 7, but the new nine, the second group never has such a, never has that cool of a name. Never. <laughs> but the new nine uh, were added to the roster in 1963. They had, uh, you know, similarly uh, unpleasant <laughs> testing and, and training uh, as the, the seven before them. Uh, and during the program, three astronauts would die in air crashes during training, including the prime crew for Gemini 9. And when we get to that, we're going to talk about that, but uh, a really tragic story. Um, Gemini 9, the mission did carry on. It's performed by the backup crew. It's the only time that's actually happened uh, in NASA history where the, the prime crew was completely replaced by the backup crew after their death. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of high fives and, and, and new ground covered in Gemini, but it's definitely marked by tragedy as well. Yeah. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it when we, when we get there. Um, this is, uh, I think Gemini in a lot of ways, I mean, we can talk about John Glenn, who was one of the original seven and then of course flew in the space shuttle. But, um, as a, as a, uh, member of Congress, right, as a, as a senator. But uh, the, in many ways, I think Gemini is the, is the, uh, the, the program that brackets uh, and connects uh, this era to the space shuttle era. And that's because of who we'll talk about next time, uh, the commander of, or not the commander, the second seat in Gemini 3 with Gus Grissom was a guy named John Young, I'll have a lot more to say about John Young, but suffice it to say, for my money, he is the greatest astronaut because he flew Gemini, Apollo, and the space shuttle. Mm-hmm. That is a heck of a career. So he was on Gemini 3. But first, that'll be next time. That's like yeah. a teaser. Let me tell you about <laughs> Gemini 1 and Gemini 2. Here are the crews of those two missions. There they are. They were they were uncrewed missions. <laughs> and they did two launches in April 64 and in January 65. The whole idea was to uh, shoot it up there and see what they could do. So uh, Gemini 1... It was intentionally destroyed during re-entry, but they, you know, they did all their mission names. They did three orbits, uh, 
uh, and and then they were good. They're like, we got it all. We got it all down. They ended up keeping the spacecraft in orbit for about four days and then uh, destroyed it in reentry. All part of the learning experience. And then Gemini 2 was a suborbital flight. They didn't even bother with orbit for this one because really it was just about the heat shield. They wanted to make sure because, again, Gemini 1, they destroyed it in reentry. And this was like, okay, we got to do the heat shield. And so they shot it up and it popped back down. And the heat shield was good. So they said, okay. In a couple of months, we're going to launch some people. And that would lead into the first crewed Gemini missions. Which we're going to pick up next week. Next time. Next episode. Mm-hmm. Next fortnight. Yes. Next fortnight unless Planet Nine is discovered. That's true. Meantime. Then we'll be back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find links to all the stuff we've spoken about over the last hour or so at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 58. You get in touch with us there. You can send us an email. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. The show is at Liftoff Podcast. You can find Jason there as J Snell, J S N E L L, and find me as I S M H. So until and uh, I- check out liftoffpodcast.space. Yes, our Tumblr where we post links from time to time of yeah. cool space articles. It's the best domain that I uh, have access to. I think it's pretty mm-hmm. good. It's pretty great. Uh, so until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios. Adios.